Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. My name is Emma Doyle, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing, I'd say, another young game changer, although I don't quite know how old you are, but I am always curious to meet young minds and look at what they're doing in the industry. Uh, there's no doubt that you have accomplished a lot already in your in your youthful years, um, but basically your, it would be fair to say you transform lives using psychology, a range of different sports psychology and social behavioural, mental health and performance psychology techniques, helping players better understand themselves and then consequently their tennis game. So did I, did I accurately describe that already, Kelly? Are we off to a good start? We are, we are. And I wanted to even add developmental psychology is the term I'll be using a lot. And that's more the field um, around the different psychologies, even though I use them all. And to answer your first question, I actually just turned 28, uh, September 22nd. So, yes, I'm a 28-year-old, still under 30 um, in the coaching world. So there's still a young generation approach with, with my mindset. Yeah, I love that. We've definitely had a number of what I call young game changers on the podcast. And I'm, I do believe in promoting young people. And I love getting into your mindset as well so that our generation can even help understand this next generation of coaches coming through. So I can't wait to, to dive into that. But uh, you listen to the show, which I really appreciate. So you know what's coming. The first question is the Vegemite question. You either love it or you strongly dislike it or you've never tried it. What's your take, Kelly? I've researched it. I've never tried it, but I like the, I like the model. It's, a, it's an awesome little dish, a little recipe. Um, and it seems like it has a lot of significance and meaning to it. Yeah, it definitely does from a developmental psychology perspective being, uh, I guess they, they put Vegemite on our dummies. So any any Aussies uh, out there will know that we, we love our Vegemite. But I, I love the way you answered that. So let's kick it off that way. Can you share with us a coaching moment that went really well and what might be a lesson? Well, I think the first big piece about the moment was coaching while young. So I had a chance before I was 18 to coach. It was just summer camps and it was a chance to be with kids. But the coaching moment was that I was around the same age as the kids a little bit younger than me. So the coaching experience wasn't so much coach student as it was mentor. And this gave me a chance to learn as a mentor and gave them a chance to be a mentor in other ways and just show me what their age group and their generation was like with tennis. Sometimes it taught me to be off a little bit and let them have the fun of it also they were very eager at different times and it taught me to learn how to tell them express yourselves and give yourselves an aspect that you want to tell me you want to ask questions let's just go back so that was that was probably the best thing and so um recently some of the kids that i coached when i just started out that was in 2017 they just went to college so some have called they're like hey i got on my college team or I've got this chance to like play club team. I'm getting my first cohort class of that. So that's been my biggest uh, coaching experience. I want to ask a little bit of a deeper question around that though. So how did you uncover this, this way of coaching? Because not many people have said that. 
on the podcast? Was this something that was always inside of you or did a mentor come into your life? Or yeah, tell me more yeah. about that. As we dive into the different, why I do what I do, but I think it was because I've always been curious about tennis because I never grew up in a traditional tennis format. Having a coach from the start or going to a club and having that experience, um, that can be more considered a, a common tennis practice. Uh, my family was uh, military, and so some aspects I moved on, you know, moved a lot. And I moved even around the same area a lot. I think it was like 22 homes of moving in and out. And so I never had a learning, a learning aspect or tool to just get me, okay, this is how you do it, or this is a fundamental piece. So I got eager to figure it out. So I learned through just doing it, kind of threw myself in there. And again, it was brutal. There's some good moments. And I'll tell you some of the bad moments, but there's definitely a brutal aspect of, of learning um, how to learn about coaching and how to learn about receiving information. And I can't wait to take a deeper dive into that. Uh, so I know that I know that we're heading that direction for sure. What about on the flip side, a coaching moment that didn't go so well? And what was a lesson or two? It, OK, so contrary to to being a coach and trying to figure out what coaching was, coaching burnout where you, you get the young mentality. You're young, you should be able to do all this stuff, just grind or just go after it. So I'm spending what starts out as six to eight hours, a more ideal work day, starts to become nine and 10 and 11, becoming a yes man to anything and everything because I wanted to show people what I'm learning. And so being young and being um, able to have this very you know egotistical i can do this we can do this um but not being self-centered but just having this drive you're working 10 12 hours a day and people are supporting that so there's days where i was trying to give my best clients that i felt were my best at the time my worst performance because i was in a burnout mode and sometimes you know you don't yeah i can keep getting people through i can keep talking to people if i'm in a club setting i can keep making ends meet that way but that's not why it was there in the first place so my passion dropped my uh way to inspire people dropped and then my context for why i was coaching in the first place dropped as well obviously it begins with self-awareness mm -hmm. to know that you're experiencing burnout what did you do about it i passed the threshold i i definitely have this uh very personal side to me where i like to uh, yes, you, you're a coach and you're a student, but again, again, the mentorship. So with mentorship, you can talk about stuff besides tennis. And it's just kind of like, how's your day to, you know, I hope everything's going on in your world and your life. And so by doing that, I could have communication that de-stressed my uh, one, one side of me, which was always just, I have to coach you and you have to come and learn the lesson. And so I broke a dynamic of just coach-student and that gave me the better aspect to talk out how I was feeling or listen to really how they were feeling and getting more of the human to human experience. Yeah. And the transactional experience as well, rather than, you know, trading time for money or coaching so much more than that, isn't it? 100%. What about a sliding doors moment? That sounds like we, there's, there's one already there, but do you have a, a sliding doors moment that you could share with us? There is, and if I can be vulnerable, it's it's a it's a very important one that doesn't happen to a lot of people. But uh, even though I started young, trying to coach, uh, a bigger moment happened that changed my whole aspect altogether. 
and my I lost my father to cancer, and I lost my father to cancer, which changed how I wanted to impact people on all fronts, and it gave me a better mission. You know, time is valuable, and you know, trying to share those experiences are valuable. So instead of it just being about me, it became about we, and I got a little bit more done with uh, how I'm trying to impact people as a whole. And so, yeah, you, you lose something, or it could be someone, but you lose something that has been with you probably your whole life, and you have tons of questions about that. And as a coach, you ask a lot of questions, so I learned how to better ask questions and how to better be okay with questions unanswered, which is something that, you know, as a player explores who they are or as the people that you interact with explore more, you sometimes don't have the answer. So I learned to be a better expert and a better person by identifying what I knew and what I didn't know and how to like send people to the right, right direction. If you don't mind, would you mind sharing a little bit more about your dad and maybe a impact that he's had on you? My father uh, was the military side of my, my household, along with his brothers and sisters, my uncles and aunts and, and whatnot. He was touring a lot throughout my um, childhood. And so dynamics of relationships being close and being very far, the very important times in my life, he was there all the time. And he was there not at all. And so what I learned through that experience wasn't good or bad. It was that I've learned two kinds of extremes. You learn that somebody will be there for you through thick and thin, and that's a level of care. And then there might be people that just are silent and you can't connect with them. And so with my eagerness and figuring out the middle, that's what I began to coach um, up until he passed away. And then when he did, I found that the quality of what I'm looking for is more about everybody's individual experience is more wholesome than a one-size-fits-all approach. So you have cares all the time, doesn't really care at all, and kind of cares. But that's not really what the gray area should look like. And so I learned that the gray area is actually independent connections and love and compassion and togetherness with the growing process of, in this case, the player or the, or the coaching situation. I'm just going to go there straight away. Norm, I'm going off, I'm going rogue already with you. Love, love it. <laughs> I'm following my gut. So I want to ask you a question that I'm sure a lot of young coaches face. When you are getting to know the whole person and it's beyond the tennis court, yet you're, you're so young, how do you, uh, find the balance between being their friend, being their coach, and maybe even someone even thinking, oh, you're really cute. <laughs> I'm just going to ask it. How do you like tread that water? You, you set boundaries before you get on the court, boundaries that are not communicated with the other person. Because I think that you need to set yourself up for momentum and growth and development. And I think people sometimes get development confused with progress. If I get a relationship that has progress and I feel more comfortable, I'm going to let some guards down. And I feel like that's very comfortable and common with coaches around 22 to 28. Everybody's like, I'm just here for, I don't know. I'm just here to make a paycheck. I'm just here for this one thing, this X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And so they don't diversify, but when they open up these doors, yeah, they look young and vulnerable. So I solve it by doing this. 
when I develop somebody, I let them know where the goal of what we're going toward. And I let them know things that might stop that goal. Now, I don't know if that theory is true right off the bat 100% all the time, but by laying down these elements of, hey, you know what? Like I can only coach you because I feel this might happen later. I can only coach you from this time to this time in the week because I know that I know you've expressed to me that you get tired after work, for example. And so now you're just like, I just want to de-stress. But if you de-stress with me, you, you could, I don't know, open up a can of worms that like, it's just not ethical for anybody. So I think that like, for my peace of mind, I've made a rule, for example, I don't coach a certain dynamic of, of groups unless it's like a big group of people. And that it's not to discriminate or anything like that. It's to be honest with myself that I am still young and there's many people that have whatever outlets of, of what they want to accomplish. Setting the ground rules early, it's a really good uh, lesson for everyone to hear, I think. What about in one to a maximum of three words, what makes a great coach? Diversity, adaptation, and learning. And to dive into that, someone who diversifies, I think of education. And I think this is actually a little bit about my background. When I was in college and I did uh, a form of education, I kind of went sideways. I did a interdisciplinary studies, which let me dive into different levels of psychology that were very specific, but didn't have to be the whole one size fits all approach. I wanted to give people different ways to learn. The adaptation, the game or whatever the player is inside of is always changing. There's always something about someone or, or some event in the game that makes everybody move this way or that way in a particular direction because it was so astounding, but it was so different. You have to have the ability to adapt, to be aware of those things so that you're moving in, again, a progressional way, in a developmental way. And then I said learning because even coaches don't have all the answers. And again, an expert can identify somebody who knows what they know and doesn't know what they know but acknowledges it. And so those three elements, I think, help diversify a coach, no pun intended, but help give the coach uh, a very dynamic way to look at constant growth, ever-changing growth and progress as a whole. Thank and you so, for sharing. You're welcome. And if I can, um, in my tennis world, I've done adaptive tennis and I've done wheelchair tennis. And even my coaching platform on more able body tennis i've done resort and club and um parks and rec and and you learn so many kinds of demographics uh you learn so many kind of, kinds of skill levels you learn that people see i guess in the game of tennis people see the game of tennis a specific way but then you go down the street and that specific way is very different and so that's why i'm bringing diversity because if you can unlock that awareness you end up kind of seeing the game in a different valuement than just the sport. A lot of people say, hey, there's a median. I use tennis for a tool. I use tennis as a way to impact people for X, Y, Z. So that's, I think, coming from a diverse perspective. I think that's one of my favorite parts of being in the corporate world now because all my stories are very tennis heavy. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Tennis heavy stories provide so many life lessons because it really does expose your character and and your character gets exposed in a number of different ways continuously. So thank you for sharing that. I love that. 
All right. How about uh, where we ask you to ask us a question? What sparks Kelly's curiosity? So my biggest question is where do you get your mentorship from? And if that's a person or if that's a philosophy or if that's a method, and it's actually a two-part question. And the second part is how do you grow other people with that mentorship? So it's one thing to internalize what you're learning from that, that one thing, but it's another to be sharing it. And so I know that coaches, when, when we get into organizations and things like that, we have conferences and symposiums and, and ways to inspire a lot of people, but that might just be one particular idea. And so it's kind of, again, kind of like my three rules with a great coach. How are you finding mentorship to diversify better or to adapt better? And then how are you giving that new piece of information to other people? Because I like a coach that's learning while they're practicing it and not always that just has the answer. Because then I'm not working with the coach. I'm kind of working from the coach. That's a, that's a different uh, mm. perspective. So on that note, what are your thoughts on let's future pace. It's 10 years from now. Do you believe a great coach is someone who shares everything that they know in their head to say a, a, a young mentee? Do you think that that is the way to go? Or do you think that it's good to share, but hold, hold a few secrets, secrets back and not share everything, you know, what, What's your, what do you thought? What would you do in ten years' time? Well, I have to ask a question of that. Where's the intention coming from, right? And I think that the uh, coach themselves might have missed out on something. And I've seen this about a lot of coaches. And so they give the rest of their information because they want to see the person succeed in a way they haven't. At the same time, somebody who's older has a lot more history and experience, so they probably have made a lot more mistakes. So sometimes there's a time and a place to give this information about. So I understand both sides. I feel like they are building blocks upon each other. But the first one is that you don't give all the information, the foundational section. Because with every foundation, you know, right now, quantity, how much is going to be too much of an overload? You as a coach are so inspired, you're seeing that they're learning. You want to give them more. You want to give them so much more. And then the little things that are supposed to be in the ground, the seeds, don't really flourish the way they're supposed to. But limit the, the, uh, the foundational focus of what you're doing. Now, if the person is at a place where it's coming from them, this is the mentorship side, it's coming from them to seek this, then you open up your doors. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Mm. And I force the horse to water and then force them to drink, and then the quality is not that good. Maybe the person drops the sport after a couple of years. Maybe they don't ever learn how to confront their biggest issue about what they're learning because of whatever reason. They have too much information to go through. Um, and so they have the answer. Yeah, sure, but they don't know how to use it. I like the bamboo seed analogy. You water yeah. it, water it, water it for five years. Just keep watering it, and then bam, it, it comes yeah. out, and then and then you can give them as much as you know. I I, uh, I like that. So, what is the difference between a mentor, a coach, and a psychologist? 
That's a good question. So, and for those who, who know, I'm not like a actual psychologist, but I use this information that I've learned in, in personal experience, as well as mentors who are psychologists. The difference between the three is where the information of the knowledge is coming from. So if I think of a psychologist, and, and I want to be very sensitive about this, it's coming from the player. The player is trying to uh, jumble or unjumble all the words and depuzzle it. And the psychologist asks maybe questions or, or creates the atmosphere for someone to then release as much as they can. And it starts to build that development where now it's a free open space for them to go and release themselves and talk it out. And then they might actually find the answer. Like we said earlier, they, they might have the answer the whole time, but they have so much information to seek it through. And so that might be, might be a problem. The coach, I think because that role is uh, interchangeable, maybe the coach learns something from the player and the player is now able to open that door. But the coach is the one, I think, that is trying to give new knowledge. And so I think there are different aspects of knowledge in, in a sporting world, in a business world, in a coaching world. But if you're trying to give new knowledge and you're trying to open a door that's just not been opened before, I think that's where a coach begins. So a psychologist has the old information, trying to figure out where it is that they need to express themselves. I think coaching is a lot of newer information. Like things like reinforcing or giving, you know, just a new aspect. But I think mentorship is when you're both, you both don't have the answer and you're both trying to go through it together. Um, even if somebody's done a very identical, and I'm, I'm going to try to be very clear with my words, a very identical experience. Because I do believe you could go through the same experience, experience as somebody else and it'd be totally different. And so like for that player, especially in the game of tennis, because it changes every five years. You know, the way to hit a forehand might be like completely different now or the way to approach a situation or, or have a, a mentality that you're supposed to have this way might be different nowadays. For that reason, mentorship is the more median. Coaching is the more for new information and psychology is the more expressing your old information. I like the way you, you tackled that. It was, that was uh, super interesting. So let's wind back the clock. So... Mm -hmm. You know, we've heard about your upbringing and you, you went on to play college tennis, moving all the time and not having regular training environments, I'm assuming. Could you talk us through how was that journey for you and, and then how did you end up at, at a U.S. college? Sure. Uh, first off, it's it definitely is a road that if you are upset about not having the experiences and the tools, I can understand why you would leave the sport. So I'm going to say that first, because it's not impossible to find information, but it is strategic to learn about which ones are right information or correct. I won't say right or wrong. I'll say more correct information for you. So when I grew up and I did have like some stability in areas, I would go to the local parks and rec and you would have the people who've been playing there 34 years. That's their home turf. That is their place to play. Um, all age groups, but there's a community and a family just like you would get anywhere else. I learned that whatever they said was the law. That was, that was it. That was the information I had. And I do believe that the wall is a great asset as a training tool, especially in the game of tennis. 
that the wall kind of helped me become consistent uh, with what they taught me, with my physical game. But there was one thing that I learned, which is what I call nowadays adaptation consistency, because there would always be a new person on the block in that community that would beat everybody else just one time. And then everybody's philosophy would change and whatever that new guy or new gal that was beating everybody said or thought, that was the way you play tennis. So luckily, a lot of people, as I was growing up, went through that trial and tribulation. And I learned how to learn that not everything you hear, not everything someone says that may be better than you is the right information. I got to playing in college as an opportunity because I did well in high school. Um, luckily, I am a tall individual, and I was able to use my height and my uh, athletic ability for what I have to to play the game in a different way. And I was uh, recruited, but I don't think that my college experience was my best playing experience. Not I had a great time. I learned a lot, but I actually learned again when when these these life events happen, changed the course of how like I practice or how I thought, and so. I will say for those who've never thought about coaching or think it to be some way, you learn the second aspect of what you're trying to learn. And I think the second aspect is, you know, how to reevaluate, reassess, and become aware of the same stuff you already know. And I hope that clicks with people. Um, and so I use that. I got better. I ended up getting with uh, older partners and, and played a tournament as an adult. Like, I guess time, as time goes on, you know, you just, you get better through those experiences, but I loved how I learned not to trust everybody's information. For, for me, I found mentorship as like my way. So that's how I really grew. I love the curiosity that you've spoken about this whole episode, asking questions, because so many times I don't see it enough. The coach stands up as the as the uh, the king or the queen of the court and, and sprouts their map of the world onto the people in front of them and they take that as gospel. And I think the more we can invite curiosity and invite exploration and invite questions and for the coach to be okay if you even have an answer that you're looking for in your head, you've set up a great learning environment, you bring them in, you say, what, what's the moral of the story or what's the purpose of the activity? And somebody gives you something completely different to what you're thinking. That is my favorite, one of my favorite coaching moments when I when I did more yeah. coaching. And it happens in the workplace as well. As well, you've mentioned it already as well, regarding that two people can have the same experience or even the same conversation and it's viewed vastly different at times. Well, I was gonna make a point, and that's a psychology point, and and also sociology, but just your, your demographic and your, your, your location of where you learn, where, whatever you're learning, is going to be different. But it's funny, like you said, it's always going to be gospel because it's, it's what you know. Mm. Uh, and one thing that I aim to do as a coach and whole is teach people around learning. Like the skill of learning itself is not just defined by information. It's actually like the patterns. It's the, the philosophy behind what you're doing. I think that's important. One example I have as well is uh, when I was coaching a wheelchair clinic and, and doing summer camps this past year, we brought the kids together to learn about adaptive tennis. Able-bodied individuals 
kids learn about it. And so what we said was, hey, what information or what ideas do you guys know about wheelchair? And they were saying all sorts of stuff that was beyond stereotypical. They can't hit with the racket because they have to move the wheelchair. Or, you know, there's no way for them to move and, and function. And they have to use their teeth. And, and so that those moments exist. And it was crazy to process. And it was just because they did not know that the only difference between wheelchair tennis and what people would deem able body tennis is the two bounce rule. Everything else, you know, to their function, for the most part, for their function and capability can be competitive. It can be a learning situation. And, uh, and I'm sure as you have more people that, that deal with the Special Olympics and um, wheelchair side can probably agree with this, that there's a limit that we all can do. doesn't matter what limit you have. There's a limit that we can all do to function. And if it's enough to do our sport or our action of doing the sport, then we're just like everyone else in that way. It reminds me of when I asked a group of students once, you know, what the Paralympics means. And they're like, oh, well, they're paraplegics. And so that's why they have to play wheelchair tennis. And I'm like, no, it's parallel, meaning alongside the Olympics. <laughs> so education, education, education. Speaking of education, so there's this situation that appears to be coming up in a couple of my, my previous podcast interviews where coaches are saying there's a, there's a shortage of young people wanting to become tennis coaches with the hybrid world, with uh, the allure of bigger salaries in technology, etc. What advice have you got for directors of clubs that are saying, oh, these young coaches don't work the way we used to, you know, we, we had the high work ethic and now these young coaches are just there to pick up a paycheck. What advice have you got to educate us on the thinking of your generation to be inspired to want to become coaches? Age has always been a funny thing to me because a lot of people do, uh, visualize age as experience and history. And I think quality comes at a different point in time for everybody. The way I've noticed the tennis industry to work in the club setting, for example, is it's still a hierarchy. You spend a couple years at the entry level and then you get considered to move up. But because of that time, all that time at the entry level, you're in a habit of this is what it's supposed to be like. Younger coaches don't have a name to themselves yet. They're in the middle of proving what they can do, not to anybody else per se, but like what they've been inspired to do and what they're passionate to do. But because they don't have a lot of resources or outlets, you know, they're only limited to maybe a, a, a few ways to do it. And they get really darn good at those few ways to do it. And so that I know uh, visually or, or with optics looks like this person is not really in it for the dynamic knowledge that I know now, because 10 years ago, they were doing the same thing in some context. They were doing the one or two items. So I think for, for the directors, it's okay to be traditional. It's also okay to be creative. And I think with the new generation of, of players and coaches of, of any sport nowadays is a lot different than it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, there's a lot more resources, tools, technology. And I do realize that sometimes things that are working, you don't reinvent the wheel per se, as they say. 
But maybe reinventing the wheel is what sparks the curiosity to start doing something more inspirational or more, more dynamic for everything around them. If I may, I can also say that like the person above the director might have like, this is what's working and, and we stick to that. So I understand that the director is actually more of a middleman at times than, than the top. But when they are the top, that creative should be stumping. And this is my personal opinion. Creative should be stumping traditional. We should be doing more creative ideas, trying and failing new things, because it only makes us better at being more aware, more diverse, more adaptive, right? Um, but I do know that directors and, and um, we'll say entry-level uh, employees in that way, they, they don't communicate other than a hierarchy. Like, what are we doing? How are we meeting ends meet? And especially in the club setting, how are we eating, meeting ends meet? Nothing wrong with that in the business world. But understand that that does affect quality. And if you're not giving these people their own autonomy at the beginning stages, I can understand why there's a loop in a cycle. Great advice. Middle, middle man or middle woman as well, mm -hmm. just picking up on language. I know that you believe in that. I just want to switch back to learning, the, the skill of learning, because I know that you're very passionate about that in terms of the developmental pathway. So what would you say, rounding off this episode as well, like what are your top three tips that if you could share around the skill of learning to help coaches better understand it or even be interested in understanding it? Yeah, I do. Uh, the first one's a question, as, as it's been this whole time. What are your learning outlets? That's my very first question. Um, is that a person? Is that a thing? And I know in the tennis world, the professional world is seen as an outlet as well as the amateur world. If you understand those layers, then you will soon to understand that there are layers within that. It's a giant little puzzle. So, so I ask what your outlets are because that tells me at least, it gives me a spectrum of understanding with where you're getting your information from. And that goes from anything in life, from politics all the way to you know, personal opinions, to how you view life. But if it's only coming from a little bit of outlets, you're going to have a very, um, you know, high, high one way or the other mentality. So that's my very first one. Where, where are you getting your outlets from? Two is, do you think there's a difference between learning and development? And I think learning is when you take in information, let that just be that. You're just taking in knowledge. You're learning, you're processing. But developing is the application phase of that and even the styling phase of that. How much of that application does work for you and what doesn't? And then lastly, is I would recommend people to take one day a month when they are learning or developing and not ask questions or not respond because I think you get a lot more when someone's like really passionate. They'll just, you asked this earlier, if somebody's really passionate, wants to give you all the information or if someone hides from you, you learn more about the person in silence when you're in silence, because you can see there's some psychology behind that as well. Um, when you're in silence, you can see how somebody reacts to the uncomfortableness of someone not talking back or the connection that this person really wants to have with you if they're talkative and they want you to be talkative, it's different for them. 
it's going to be a different situation. So um, it's okay to be silent when learning and developing, because I think you get, you get the human development process that is not sports related, that is not life related, that is just between you and that person and that relationship that you've been trying to build, you end up learning a little deeper about what you're working with. So the first one is your outlets. The second one is understanding that learning and developing are different. And then lastly, that your silence can speak words. You can, you can start to listen more. You can, high school players, that if you are interacting with them, they're in such a social phase of their life. And they have many people telling them what to do. They have many people not saying anything to them, and they just don't know what to do. But what's cool is they're listening. They are truly listening, even if they don't want to. But they listened enough to make a choice not to, or they listened enough to make a choice to listen. And so, you know, that's where I actually kind of have this mind-blowing idea that you can learn in silence. One of my mentors told me when I was super young, or maybe I was 18, 19, but he just said, Emma, remember the power of the pause. Exactly. You will realize how many, you know, and I've been guilty of it too. If I have a player that's really quiet, I might have overstepped talking too much. I mean, I'm passionate and I'm going to have words to say, but I'm not going to, if I didn't catch that, I wouldn't have seen what they really needed. And like you've told me before, Roger Federer, when asked a question, a great coach is someone who listens. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but you don't have to be talking to listen. <laughs> the joy of listening. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Kelly. I'll, uh, I'll finish just by saying what's, what's next for you? What, what are you most excited about? Yeah, I took a big leap and I'm working in a, in a, consulting like way i want to be able to teach people how to use tools of learning and how to understand what outlets they have and so i'm an independent coach as of right now free to be contacted on ways to build portfolios or handbooks or little ways to help you for your your self-growth with yourself why you do your sport and maybe how you can become a coach as a whole to inspire other people so that we can all diversify, adapt, and always keep learning. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your the way that you think. And I really encourage any other young game changers out there as well to, to reach out to Kelly. He's so open. He's always up for a, a chat. We've had a great chat prior to this conversation as well about learning, about the future of what's next. So keep up the great work, mate. And thank you, everybody, for listening. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring, and U.S. placement service. The service helps athletes navigate the often challenging world of choosing your best college fitness performance. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. That's the number four 